Welcome to another installment of Down the Hatch, the podcast about swallowing and swallowing disorders. Today's installment is entitled Bridging the Clinician-Researcher Gap, an intro to dysphagia grand rounds. Today, I'll be talking to Rinki Verandani. Rinki is a clinician and speech pathologist from Mumbai, India and she's a certified brain injury specialist. She's a clinician of six years and she's worked primarily with the trach vent dependent population. She's currently working in the long-term care setting in Rochester, New York, and has worked with stroke, TBI, trach and vent, Parkinson's, and dementia populations. Rinky and I are talking because we would very much like to address the fairly controversial topic of bridging the clinician-researcher divide in dysphagia management. I really hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you're excited about, at the end of this conversation, the introduction to dysphagia grand rounds that is dedicated to clinicians and helping them to engage in the research literature through guided self-studies. Here goes. So what we wanted to talk about was some issues in not just, really not the world of speech pathology, I can't speak so much for other specialties, but certainly in swallowing, there appears to be a researcher-clinician gap, and in my opinion, while it's particularly important for swallowing, is because to some degree, I feel like we need all the help we can get. So a little bit of background, as you know, Rinky, because you actually had a poster on this topic at the Dysphagia Research Society in, I think it was 2016, right, this year? Yep, it was this year. Yep. It was the whole concept that people who uh, replied to you, and it was Yvette McCoy, um, you both had a poster on the topic that people don't really feel very well prepared for managing dysphagia once they've graduated based on their academic training alone. And so, and it's it appears as though this is a trend across other kinds of investigations and swallowing. Now, I don't know if there's been a study that has shown that folks, in, they feel particularly less prepared for swallowing compared to others, but we do know that swallowing has only recently been mandated by ASHA to be required in the graduate program relative to other areas. We also know that it is not required that there be a course in undergrad on swallowing, on normal swallowing, in the same way that there is requirements for normal language and speech and other things, cognition. So um, the researcher-clinician gap in swallowing is particularly problematic because we need to be communicating and it appears as though there are clinicians who know a lot of some kinds of things, researchers know a lot of some kinds of things, and more would be gained if the two communities had better, more equal communication where it's not a hierarchy where researchers are up here and clinicians are down there. Rather, um, it's more of a reaching across the aisle, so to speak, to assist the patients who's our ultimate, most important constituent. What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree. And I will interject before even going on to discussing the communication gap. Even though ASHA has now mandated that dysphagia be a course, their own surveys and numbers have shown that um, 90% of respondents being SLPs have said that they are the ones who are the primary caregivers or specialists with respect to swallowing. And still mm -hmm. dysphagia continues to be one course. 
So that might be two or three credits and you're expected to cover not just normal swallowing, you're expected to cover pediatric dysphagia and adult dysphagia and geriatric, uh, the geriatric population now, you know, requires a different kind of attention and focus. And you're expected to cover all of that in basically one semester, which just seems, and a lot of people who don't have uh, clinical placements where they're working with swallowing, that's all they have once they graduate. Right. Then they have to be these specialists. So I feel like that in itself is such a burden once you've graduated. And then, you know, you want to keep up with research and you want to really learn more and you want to collaborate with researchers because you have this data that you can help them with and, you know, figure out how you can really learn more about swallowing. But I just feel like you're almost intimidated because you're questioning if you know enough and you're you're mm-hmm. intimidated about how do you really approach this researcher and even discuss their findings maybe you haven't even seen or learned enough even though you have your ccc or you're still a cfy you're just more than a lack of communication i also feel like you're not very well prepared and so you're not confident enough to walk up to a researcher and even discuss the normal swallow that's really interesting rinky because i'm thinking about i was just going to ask you Nobody in school learns, hey, be very careful about how you approach a researcher. It's not like this ingrained thing while you're in school. I mean, certainly you have professors, some of whom, many of whom I'm sure have PhDs and are in fact researchers. But then maybe when you graduate, that whole um, approach to someone with a PhD is maintained and exacerbated by what you said, which is that the insecurity of uh, your knowledge base perhaps makes it such that you don't want to open yourself up to criticism. And even if you're not criticized, you just sort of feel like, well, I, I might not really really be able to keep up with the conversation. It might appear as though I'm not really clear what's happening. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm not doing the right thing with my patients. Do you think that's a factor? Definitely. And especially if you are, imagine most of us are like the only SLPs in 100 and 150 bed and 200 bed facilities. Uh, There are some SLPs who are running these long term care facilities where there are no physicians taking rounds and, you know, coming in every day. So you are the swallowing specialist and you're Mm -hmm. doing certain things that you're probably very comfortable with. But there are so many things maybe, you know, you don't know, but you also want are almost afraid to accept that. And then when you realize there's so much you don't know and that, you know, it should motivate us to go out there and step out of our comfort zone and really learn that stuff or keep up with it. But there's also that sense of, am I really the specialist? Am I really making a difference when I go into work every day and I'm the only one who has to make all these decisions about somebody's diet, about whether somebody's aspirating or not, what kinds of exercises they need, do they even need exercises? You know, all, all those decisions are ours alone for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, were you going to say something more? No, I was just saying that that may not be the case, especially in really big hospitals where you're lucky to have other SLPs you're working with, more experienced clinicians and, you know, academic or university-based institutes. I think people who work in those settings are really fortunate because most clinicians are willing to help others out. But especially if you're on your own and it just becomes really hard because you don't even know who to discuss your problems with or concerns. Well, you know, Rinky, I've only ever worked in such locations. The NIH doesn't count um, because it was 100% focused on research, but I was at the University of Wisconsin. 
I was at Johns Hopkins University. I'm now at the University of Florida, and I found that there is quite a range in terms of whether or not there is an established relationship with researchers such that the clinicians feel 100% safe or at least primarily pretty safe, maybe no one's 100% um, with conversations and in, tr in truth the researchers and clinicians are truly integrated and people feel like their guard is down when they approach another colleague clinician um, with questions about, hey, you know, I have this patient and this is my issue. I found that there's quite a mix from um, not so much to kind of to, wow, quite a bit. Um, and I won't name names because that's not what this is about. So I suspect that your original thought that to some degree preparation and security and this feeling that researchers are up there and you're down there can impact places where you would think that the academic um, way of uh, way of viewing dysphagia management is naturally infused into clinical care. And also when you work in such places which where maybe you don't have employers or companies or you know wherever you're working they don't really care about research as much you know whatever you do will be on your own time so you have to keep up with all these productivity demands and you have to keep up with your notes and your time and then all your patients and your caseload and in most cases whatever research you will be doing will be on your own time and something you have to even justify sometimes as to why that even matters or why it's important even attending conferences a lot of I've heard this from colleagues and I've faced this myself where you really have to justify to your employer why you need those those three days to go for DRS or to go for ASHA, even if you're presenting. So the first thought is not, oh, wow, your paper was selected. This is so interesting. What are you presenting on? It's like, oh, do you really need to take three days off for this? How is this really going to advance your career at this place? Or how is this going to impact the productivity? <laughs> exactly. So right. you almost well, feel, you know, that you feel like, is this even worth it? Should I really be doing all of this outside of my job? You know, and it's unfortunate. Well, let me ask you this. No, I, I completely agree that um, it sort of instills the whole. Well, I'm I'm over here. You know, the lowly clinician. I cannot tell you how many times I've done talks and people say, "Well, I'm just a clinician, or I'm in the trenches, or I'm way down here. I'm a lowly clinician." Um, and I think that that sort of sets the stage that there is this assumption that um, to some degree, you know, being a clinician is the lowest thing on the totem pole. And I think that it's, it begins with sort of abolishing or gradually stepping away from that perception. And uh, again, I don't know I where it comes you. from. I, maybe it's maybe it in every clini clinical domain. Maybe every, it's not SLP only. I don't know. That was my question. Like, do you feel like question? this is just something? First of all, do you feel like this lack of communication or this divide is it just a myth that's basically been perpetuated through the ages, and everyone just kind of believes we're no? Different? It's not a myth. I think it's completely no. I think sorry to talk over you. <laughs> no, so you've seen it. Like, um, do you feel like I even in university settings, it. you've seen that. 100%. It's, it lives everywhere. I mean, even clinicians who have published and have a strong publication record, he'll say, well, I'm just a master's level. And it's like, you publish first author papers and papers in journals. Um, that's something so many clinicians wish they could do. You understand research. You're well integrated. You know, your buddies, chums, pals, 
with uh, researchers and sometimes they'll say things like, well, I'm just a master's level. And I wonder if that's not, it's okay, let's just be clear that if somebody feels insecure about something like this, it's not 100% only from them. There's, I mean, sure, maybe they've just always thought, okay, my professors are up here and they have PhD, so as a clinician, I still don't have that PhD, so the profess these people function in my mind as the professors when I was in school. But I suspect that this is um, enhanced by perhaps some interactions that they've had with researchers. So if you don't mind, I, would you be willing to share um, and if we're going to just be open and honest here, which is what I think that we should be, um, would you be willing to share uh, what some rumors were about me, good or bad, like in terms of me being a researcher among clinicians? Maybe that will help to set the stage because the truth is we really don't know. You know, like no clinician is going to come up to us and say, I feel like when, you know, I ask this question, you researchers do X, Y, Z. So let's open it up a little bit. What do you think? I'm not sure if I want to, I mean, I don't have a, an opinion or an answer like specifically geared towards you as such. But obviously I had I graduated in 2011 and then I was starting to dabble into these research like collaborative projects and I'd heard your name and I'd seen you talking about your critical thinking and dysphagia management, the CTDM course. And I was just wondering, because I was pursuing my board certification and swallowing, I felt like this is a great way to earn CEUs. And it, it looked like something that hadn't been done before. But obviously, if I had to fly down to Baltimore and invest a lot of money and time and get some leave, I wanted to make sure this is going to be something I really learned from. So I started asking around. And so there was a group of people who said, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And this person's amazing. She's doing great research you know, of, of course, I'm familiar with your research. And that's one of the reasons I was drawn to this course. And then there was a group of people saying, Oh, where she's a researcher. Um, she is just this supremely intelligent person. And you're just going to have to hear what every researcher has to say. It's almost like they're doing this research in these different uh, controlled environments with these perfect scenarios. And, you know, it's not something you can take home on Monday morning. And, you know, you're investing $500, you might as well, I don't know, do these I don't want to take names of websites, but do these online um, speech pathology courses they have or just learn something that's more clinically relevant. And I think that was my biggest question. So so this super intelligent, super accomplished researcher is going to be talking about stuff. Is it going to be relevant to anything I do in my workplace? Mm -hmm. And I will say that after, I think after attending your conference, it was just I was not only awestruck, and not just because I'm talking to you, I, I said this to everyone I spoke to, I loved that it, I had developed a sense of confidence almost, um, just because of my history and background, like coming from India, and then coming to the United States, and then I got my C's, and I felt like, okay, I've worked in acute care now for three years, now I've done, you know, I, I pretty much know swallowing, I, I've worked with dysphagia, <laughs> I, I'm good with it, like I know what I'm doing, and then your course basically I don't have a word for it, but it just like broke down every inch of like confidence I had with respect to my <laughs> swallowing skills. But I love that because I felt like, wow, like this is so refreshing because there's so much we don't know about the normal swallow. And we're so focused as clinicians on learning what's abnormal. I loved it. And so that just completely got me so much more interested and just changed my perception of dysphagia in a way I've never experienced before. 
Well, you know, that's interesting because I do, in fact, get two, I almost feel like there's a bimodal, oh shoot, I was going to say bimodal distribution, which is very researchable way to say. <laughs> there's like two groups of people in the audience. are the people who say, look, I know X and you're not going to come up in here. I, I didn't spend time on my weekend away from my family spending money on this course for you to tell me I don't. And they're, in fact, a little bit more offended that you've indicated that there's stuff we don't know. Now, I don't give these courses saying, and Dr. Plowman and I don't give these courses assuming that you didn't know this and you didn't know that. We just assume that this is something that a lot of people would be interested in hearing. We don't actually know what people know. So we're often surprised by the difference between the people who are like, when you tell me I don't know something that I thought I knew, I am energized, I'm excited because I'm a lifelong learner and I want nothing more than to improve. And the people who have a minute, not you know a lifetime, but they have a moment, they'll admit it, of you just shattered my world and took away my confidence because this is what I do, like I am the swallowing expert and you said stuff that I didn't know. Now, I've had people say that to me at the end of meetings or email me sometime later or come up to me after and say, hey, I went to your course a couple years ago about so-and-so and I was really upset that I didn't know these things, but it just gave me the confidence to go ahead and learn it. So I think people do come around and I think it's what we, this comes back to what we said in the beginning. To some degree, we can only kick ourselves so much for not having had the best possible training in swallowing. This is not an individual clinician's problem. And I will share my story, which is that first things first is in undergrad, I took a course called Anatomy and Physiology of Speech and Hearing Mechanisms with my one of my favorite professors named Dr. Shirley. And she was a cranial facial specialist. And everybody said this course was going to be, it's super hard with her. Like if you take it with her, it's the hardest course, but you'll learn a lot. I did not take them seriously. And I ended up taking that course twice. And I will never forget the second time I course it, second time I took it, I dropped it the first time and didn't fail it because I was about to. <laughs> took it the second time over the summer. So did anyone fail <laughs> hey, You were going to fail it. it. <laughs> They say B students are the best researchers. That's what they say. So I was definitely a B student. So um, whenever I, I took it again in the summer, like, you know, those in the summertime when you take a four credit hour course, your credit hour course, you're basically living, eating, sleeping, and breathing that course. And at the end of the course, Dr. Shirley, of all people, looked at me and said, you ask really good questions. You should consider a PhD. And I felt like she was really talking to someone behind me. So I may have actually looked over my shoulder like, her? I couldn't even believe that somebody would say that to me, someone as smart as her, right? Mm -hmm. And then I graduated with my master's and I knew nothing about swallowing. The only reason I learned about swallowing is because I decided to get a PhD. Thank you, Dr. Shirley, for planting that seed. And then um, during the PhD, when I was working with Dr. Ludlow at the NIH, she had a need for us to figure out how many people have chronic pharyngeal dysphagia in the U.S., just sort of read through some studies to see if we can figure it out from prevalence studies. And as by virtue of having to do that, I delved really deeply in the literature and I learned so much about swallowing because my job as a PhD student at the NIH under Chrissy Ludlow's tutelage was in fact to read about swallowing. And I knew all the names. I knew where people were based. I knew what their area of research was. I knew the anatomy and physiology because of the ESTEM studies we were doing. And that's where I learned it. But that's not where people should have to learn it. Because there are also PhDs who got 
their degree in an area that's not very anatomy and physiology based, maybe some epidemiology or something like that, or general health care, or cost of dysphagia. And they know a little less about dysphagia, um, about um, swallowing anatomy and physiology and that kind of thing. It's just a question of when you were able to be in a situation that helped you to pick up the pieces that you were never quite helped with in the master's program. And that's, again, not the way that we should be learning this. We shouldn't be learning it, learning it on the back end. Um, and part of the thing is that I think people feel like, well, there's something wrong with me because her notes said that she could tell you know, that there was a five-second delay in swallow onset. And I couldn't tell that with my finger, so something's wrong with me. And I like, think no, a actually, lot of people say that. I don't know how anyone knows that. <laughs> exactly. You know? And I think it's because of all these social media groups that, you know, we have now. Um, like, I started the medical SLP forum, and so it has, like, mm -hmm. 13,000 people now. And by default, I have to moderate all the comments. And sometimes some of the stuff people are discussing, it's, it's almost upsetting. And as a moderator, I have to be... Um, balanced so I can't really go out and say anything but so many people are saying certain things that very confidently um that absolutely don't make sense because yes you can't right. see what's going on in the pharynx based on your bedside the clinical bedside or the oral cavity but you, you don't know I love the post you had put up about this is it premature spillage or is it um penetration or swallow onset delay yes yeah that so how is someone judging that? And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen in my notes, um, decreased laryngeal elevation, aspiration noted at bedside, and premature spillage noted. How are you seeing oh any of that? And then yeah. you have maybe 12 other thousand people reading that who, who don't want to question you and they probably feel like, oh, if she can see it, what's wrong with my bedside? Why am I not able like, to write Would this? we be laughing right now if GIs could determine where in the colon a poop was stuck based on like listening exactly. and pushing on the belly? I'm sorry, but we'd be like, uh, are you serious right now? Telling me where my poop is stuck without like <laughs> like doing something better? Or I don't even, even know what they do to figure that out. I just made that an aneurysm or this person has a tumor without even doing an MRI. How do you know that? Right. Right. So, well, I mean... Look, I mean, ultimately, this comes down to the things. And so this, I think, brings us back to what is it that researchers, I never hear anyone at, you know, Dysphagia Research Society or among researchers debating the extent to which someone can, like, tell whether aspiration happened without fluoro or freeze. Like, that's not a conversation. It's sort of like, uh, yeah, the, it's like, yeah, the world is round. Can we move on? We're, we're past that now. So... The issue is how has that not transferred over to a different, I'll say, I think of the clinical and research worlds as concentric circles or overlapping circles. They're not completely separate separate cubby holes. There are some things that don't translate to, from one world to another. So animal models, very you know, basic science, it's not immediately in the clinic, um, but it certainly is related. And some things that happen in the clinical world just could happen in the research world, and that's okay. But they're concentric circles because there is a, a component of overlap. Mm -hmm. And we want that overlap to be bigger, not just a sliver, but maybe half of each circle if we could. And that's where I wonder how researchers can be more helpful to clinicians so that we're not debating some of these basic concepts. We're actually moving more deeply into 
more complicated aspects of dysphagia management and swallowing so as to help the patient. But I think the discord sometimes is that, and may I be honest, maybe we can be honest with each other about clinician versus research world. There is a lot of utter disbelief. I mean, if you have some utter disbelief about certain things that you say are posted um, on the medical SLP page that you have, um, you can only imagine that that disbelief also lives in the research world when sometimes clinicians do approach us after a talk and ask a question and sometimes that question does reveal that there's a lot of um, basic knowledge that's missing and so the question is now how do we approach this? It's always a tricky situation. Do you correct the person? Do you not correct the person to sort of save face and not and have them feel bad or anything? Or do you try to figure out how to get them to realize it themselves? Like what is the best way to do it? So I almost feel like no matter what you do, you're kind of pegged as, uh, well, if you correct them and they may never ask again, you don't want that. But you don't want them to be going out there thinking that that's actually real. What, you know, what, what, could a, what does a researcher do in that situation to help bridge the gap but not keep people from returning for more information for fear of being discovered, like you said? I would definitely say you would correct them, but maybe just approach it in a way where, and I think you did that in, in the CDDM conference. You didn't tell us why what we were thinking was wrong. You said, well, let's think about it in this way. Why do you think this is wrong? So I feel like that was exactly the way that a clinician would still feel like they're still doing the problem solving and they're thinking of looking at this, you know, you know, they're, you're encouraging lateral thinking. So they're looking at it with a different perspective, but you're not handing over the answer, which you shouldn't because clinicians need, like we are not supposed to be spoon fed by anybody because we have our degrees. Now we are scientists as well, because we've done our masters and we have enough Mm -hmm. clinical experience. So we have, a different kind of knowledge and evidence that we've amassed over the years. And so we have to, we, I feel like clinicians just need to say, okay, well, if we don't know something, that's fine. And if someone's willing to teach us that, let's just take what we can from it and try to look at this in a different way rather than feeling offended. Yeah. So getting past the beating up of oneself in order to learn. Yeah. Um, And I think, Right, and I think the same can be said. Maybe so. Maybe what you're saying is there's insecurity, but there's also defensiveness, which I think is a response to the insecurity. But I think researchers can do their part, perhaps. And you, I think you know. Sometimes I feel like researchers can do their part as well by really extending a real hand to clinicians. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, it's not just answering a few questions after your talk. It's also, and I'm not saying everyone needs to get on social media, like that's something I do, but I think that um, sometimes maybe clinicians don't understand the what incentivizes a researcher is different from what incentivizes a clinician. Um, and you can talk about what incentivizes a clinician, and you've mentioned some BB things before, like productivity, and obviously, you know, your patient's doing well and that kind of thing. But for researchers, if you're in an academic institution, it's generally going to be publishing papers, publishing grants, and um, teaching if you're at a place where teaching is important, and a lot of places are, are teaching is important. Um, your clinical work generally doesn't tie in to um, your academic tenure. And the other thing that's important is 
spending time training clinicians unless that is your direct research line like that is what you set what you have set yourself up to be a researcher of clinician learning and that kind of thing gets you virtually nothing so the time I spend for instance on social media and doing trainings and these things they don't necessarily help me at work at all that's just extra stuff I do so you know not everybody is interested and that's fine I'm not saying that with any judgment but sometimes I think there's an assumption that clinicians have which is why aren't the researchers doing this well and why are they doing that well that's what we're expected to do to keep our jobs to teach the next generation and still be professors wow I yeah I think I I was aware of that but it's just when you're saying it now I, I feel like our issues are almost the same but just in different ways because both groups mm-hmm. researchers and clinicians don't get much to do things outside of work and move closer make that effort towards really increasing their dialogue with each other because your responsibilities and incentives at work just don't um, overlap with that. So let me just see if I'm understanding that we're basically saying the same thing and this is the concentric circle thing again but researchers are not incentivized to reach reach forward to clinicians and help with any kind of specific training to some degree to a to a strong degree and clinicians are not incentivized to um, really delve into the research to see whether or not what they're doing is truly evidence-based productivity to some degree really um, productivity manages both both um, domains Mm -hmm. but the productivity categories don't overlap so for us it's generally papers and teaching evaluations and and grants and for you guys it's public it's a productivity with hitting your clinical target and anything else no just hitting your clinical target but also like I said lack of maybe support and encouragement from um, even something like ASHA like they don't mandate that we have to have a certain number of papers published or a certain number of I mean we need CEUs but that could really be related to anything and I feel like okay yeah right. if you're really so, so essentially essentially the two things that drive researcher behavior and drive clinician behavior they don't overlap and so because we don't have anything in common per se other than the ubiquitous patient in the sky that we all so I'm just saying that's what we have in common but it's not really tangible right yeah patients yeah. we all say we, we're all doing it for the patients but it's like yeah, 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 we're doing for the patients. Uh, but I'm still going back to my papers and you're going back to your target, right? I, I do think with clinicians, yeah. though, it is more about the... I feel like it is slightly more about the patient, obviously, because you're interacting with patients day in and day out. And that's just... Sure. You have to show results. And I feel like I'm seeing a positive change in terms of even with the instrumental exams we talked about or people just focusing more on the physiology. And I think it is because of, like, wonderful researchers like you and so many other researchers who are now like responding to clinical questions, even some of them being really basic questions on the SIG-13 community or doing all these presentations at ASHA and DRS and trying to make it more clinically focused. I think there has been a change that I've personally noticed, especially in the past year, where people are now, I feel like the gap or the divide is being bridged a little bit. And um, there's a long way to go, but I, I, I do see the mindsets changing. Because maybe people are realizing that what's the point of us working with these patients every day if what we're doing is not grounded in research? We probably are harming them more than even changing anything. 
You know, it's interesting you said that, that things are becoming more clinically relevant at these meetings, but you should know in the background there is a there is an interesting um, push for and against it at certain times. Like There are times where meetings are so highly clinical that there's a whole group of people who study swallowing who will never attend because it's far too clinical. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also the fact that in order to get a grant, you can't just be saying, I'm going to study what people are already doing without anything new. And by virtue of being expected to do something new, um, it does often push a researcher away from studying the exact thing a clinician is already, already doing because governing uh, grant, grant, granting institutions, be they foundations or federal institutions such as the NIH, which is sort of the biggest one that most people want to get funding from if they can, um, want to know how are you doing groundbreaking, game-changing research that pushes a whole field forward. Well, I'm not getting a grant checking to see, you know, does the chin talk uh, slow down the bolus in a stroke? You know, that, that, mm -hmm. that, grant, that grant is not happening for me. Sure, it doesn't mean that I can't incorporate it in some clever way in a larger, more interesting question, but, but I'd have to be very strategic. So a lot of times to find the money to do those kinds of studies, you just find it an extra money somewhere that maybe, you know, you got from your department or something or you incorporate it into your clinical practice in some way by collaborating with a clinician, um, which, you know, I know you've talked about before, like how can we, how can clinicians collaborate more? How it, So I'm going to change gears just a little bit, which is most people who have a PhD who are speech pathologists and are studying swallowing have had some clinical experience. And while they might not be doing the 100% of their time clinical work, they have done clinical work. And that's what helps to, that's what undergirds their research. But I don't know very many clinicians who live the life of a researcher where grants are required, tenure is, tenure is a big goal, and you have to have paper productivity. Even among those master's level clinicians, they were doing it because they love it and they're interested in it, not necessarily because their job required it of them 100% of the time. So that means that part of bridging this research or clinician gap is probably pulling re clinicians into the research world, or the dark side, as some of my doc students say, which Absolutely. is to help them to understand, yeah, understand research more, and that can come in a couple ways. One is a little bit more difficult, which is helping them to understand how each and every patient in front of them can be a bit of a, a, their own research study, right? So the N of um, one study, you know, they're just... The N of one or the single subject research, yeah. you know, where you basically are collecting data on single subjects and you're just looking for trends in them, you know what I mean? You're, you're getting an idea of what happens and this is possible and something that unfortunately could be done more. Um, and if we have time, I'll give you a vignette on that too. But the other thing is helping clinicians to read the literature more. And reading the literature more is sounds easier than it is. And then one thing that my doctoral students now, some of whom are six to ten year clinical veterans who have decided to come and do a PhD with me, have said, holy cow, reading papers is hard. Now, these are people who understand the clinical world perfectly. I mean, they have lived it and have always been interested in, in research and have, you know, read, you know, written a couple of papers and done some projects themselves. 
but reading the literature is not that easy. It's sort of like um, when you went to write your first clinical note, it wasn't like, yeah, 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 this is as easy as signing my name. No, it took a while to figure out what your style is, what's important, what's not important, and you needed to be trained on it. Well, it's the same thing with reading literature. So to some degree, it's not useful to say, well, just go to PubMed and search it up and figure out what paper you want to get. On the other hand, the drive to at least decide that, you know what, I need to understand what's in the literature can only come from within. So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Um, and and you know, I think I what a lot of... Even when you do go to PubMed, and I will say clinicians, like I said, are doing that more and more now, but you don't have an expert sitting with you telling you, well, you could, you called it a black hole one time. And I agree because you search, mm -hmm. I could search the simplest thing. If I want to know about chin tuck, like you said, is it really preventing or minimizing the risks of aspiration in stroke patients? I could get thousands of papers, if not hundreds on the same topic. Some of them by very well-known researchers probably showing me some kind of um, uh, counter you know, results that counter each other. And then how am I as a clinician with probably a little less uh, preparation and training to think scientifically? How do I know what which paper is better than the other? Or how do I know which one is even relevant? I could be so confused and overwhelmed that might discourage me from ever even trying to do this again. Right. Um, and so while you were talking, interestingly, I wrote chin tuck aspiration. I only got nine results. Okay, well... <laughs> I would think there would be more papers than that. I feel like you yourself have done so much work with Chintuck. But you know well, what? But I didn't put, well, here's the thing. Chintuck aspiration is different from just plain old Chintuck. And I have some studies on just plain old Chintuck. Yeah. And then we see 50 papers. Um, but mine happen to be in healthy people looking yeah. at swallowing kinematics. But still, or even um, I, think I think... You know, that's the NMS, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, I, without naming any company that does it. I feel like that is such a big topic being debated these days because you have companies which are posting all these scientific papers telling you why it works, but not really the specifics of or the details of the kind of placements that work, the kind of dis impairments they uh, target. And then clinicians are looking at this and saying, hey, that's evidence-based research. Like, I should be using that. Of course, NMES works. I can use it with all my patients with mild to moderate oropharyngeal dysphagia. And you can only imagine how different each of those patients are. But that's research too, right? right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, ultimately, I think one thing to remember is that Researchers are doing this, and they are absolutely dedicating their career to it, without question. Mm -hmm. And by dedicating, dedicating your career to it, that means that you have to, to some degree, abandon the clinical world to really do this properly. Think of this. There aren't that many swallowing researchers in the world. In fact, the other day, or last weekend, we had a swallowing think tank. And we kind of were laughing about it because we're like, you know, in the U.S. government, they have this rule where a certain number of high-level officials can't be in the same room at the same time because if they vomit or they, the plane goes down, there goes the government. I was like, this is like a significant <laughs> portion of swallowing research in this room, like yeah. on the globe. Like if something happens at UF this weekend, swallowing research is going to take a while to, to get back its numbers, you know, because you don't produce a swallowing researcher in, you know, a, a, a nine-month CFY. Right, so um, we that that basically means that we have to really abandon sort of some clinical stuff to really get into this. And many people with PhDs don't even necessarily do research as much as they used to. 
So we understand the literature very well because we delve deeply into it. But And I'm not suggesting that clinicians need to do that, but at the very least, what I would suggest is this. I would say that most clinicians have a question about a treatment, either because they're thinking about doing it or because they do it all the time. At the In talks, I get people who say things like, what's your opinion on e-STEM? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like walking up to um, a random physician saying, what's your opinion on Tylenol? It's like, what about, I mean, like, for what? Well, like, do you, does it work? Like, can you imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, what's your opinion on Tylenol? Does it work? You'd be like, for what? Like, Dr. Humble happened today in one of the groups. Uh, there was a person who said, I said, this actually happened today in one of the groups. <laughs> oh, my God. And this one person said, what do you think about elect e-stem with advanced, using that with people with advanced dis uh, dementia? And mm -hmm. with what kind of deficits? What are the, I mean, that is such a big group of people. And we got into discussing it. It was an interesting dialogue. But this happens more than you can imagine. Right. And if you just think about the question, what do you think of Tylenol to a random person? They're going to say, give me more information. Absolutely. And it's almost a bit of an alien question. It's like, do you know what it is? Like, you know, you just want to be like, I'm not clear. Maybe I'm missing the question. So I try to take the approach with, well, what's your specific question? Well, I mean, I just heard this and I heard that and I'm wondering what your opinion is. And often what I do is I don't want to share my opinion because I think it's unnecessarily weighted. Um, mm -hmm. I want people, I don't want to teach people, I, want to, I don't want to give people fish, I want to teach people how to fish. And when people say things like, well, you're an uh, important thought leader, I don't want to be telling people what to think. In fact, if you just take my word for it, um, I mean, look, there's some basic things like, look, this is what this muscle does, this is where it is, you know, that it's in your neck, it's not in your arm, you just have to, like, look it up and agree with me, like, it, that's where it is, that's, that's, that's the concrete fact. stuff. Yeah. Right. But then there are other things that are my opinion of a device or a treatment or, or a diagnostic, diagnostic process, and there's yours. And guess what? We can both be right because we can come from different interpretations of the same literature, and in fact, that's what makes meetings, um, scientific meetings are so interesting because we can all be very well versed in the literature and have a different angle that makes us all become more broadened. So in the same way they want to know what I think, I want to know what they think because they're actually using it. So I'm often curious about what they think, what clinicians think as well. And I think if clinicians realize they had as much to offer the research world, then they would be a little less afraid to share. But I think um, if they feel like, oh, researchers should be handing down information, then it's not going to work because we, we can never hand way. down. We could never hand down the exact information you need. We do require clinicians to realize that there's not going to be a study that matches that exact patient in front of you. But you have to figure out how to take and interpret and take in the literature in order to. Um, figure out what you're going to do with this N of one, as you say, that one person in front of you. I was going to say, I think this, what you just said, this is like the takeaway of this talk we had that I feel like clinicians, and I'm starting to realize that myself because I feel like nobody tells us that. And just the very fact that you're saying that is so reassuring and so reaffirming because like you said, researchers have so much they're looking at clinicians for as well. And we have a certain skill set that we bring to the EBP triangle and then you bring the research and then we have the patient and together we form evidence-based practice. So I feel like this exactly. is 
the biggest takeaway from today. I just think clinicians need to realize how much they can offer. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's one thing that we have to always remember is that there is a way to solve this problem. And I, you know, it actually reminds me of, I'm glad you said that, it reminds me of that post that it's probably the most overwhelmingly um, reached post that I had. I, I don't remember how I came across this paper, but it says, a study on tweets about science finds researchers own the conversation. And it went on and on about a different field and how essentially researchers are driving the conversation about something. It wasn't clinical. Oh, actually it was about neuroscience. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, this parallels is following so much. If somebody can ask me what my opinion is on something and just say, well, you're a thought leader, so tell me how to think, then mm -hmm. we've not won. We only win when we are luminary. So we teach people um, how to think for themselves in a critical way. And that, to me, is far more interesting and fulfilling that somebody says, hey, you empowered me to question this or to look that up. We can reach so many more patients that way. I mean, I can come up with the best, most effective treatment, but if ultimately it's handed to, um, um, you know, a, a, a clinician who is not quite clear on how swallowing works, it can only be so effective. So I'd rather go in both directions. Let's figure out the treatments, but let's also figure out how to make the quote-unquote end user, the clinician who will actually be implementing it, be far more versed so they can tell me even, hey, your treatment worked on this population, but it didn't work in that population. Here's my, here are the trends I'm seeing in my researcher. Mm -hmm. And then that feeds me back the next study I should do. Like, huh, that's interesting. My patient criteria should have been refined. And then we go back and forth. So to me, that's really exciting. But back to the post, it was basically me saying that my opinion is that swallowing researchers own the conversation about swallowing science. And essentially, I said, you know, would people be interested in a guided self-study sessions about the science, the scientific literature, and the extent to which, you know, we'd sort of do this online on a monthly basis or whatever it is. And there were so many people who replied and said, absolutely, without question, yes, totally mm -hmm. want to do that. So um, I think that sort of brings us to our next announcement. Do you want to make it? Yes. So I read that post and I was so excited. I think every fiber of my being was just on fire. And I was like, finally, someone realizes this is a problem. Like, it isn't just me. And so I've been thinking along the same lines uh, for like a couple of years now. And then two years ago, I had thought of this issue and I was like, well, how do we figure out how to solve this. And I, I almost thought of it as a virtual journal club or um, I thought of it as dysphagia grand rounds. So you have grand rounds in all kinds of medical settings and hospitals where mm -hmm. these experts in a particular field come and discuss the literature, come and discuss case studies and encourage you to think, like you said, not just tell you what to do, but encourage you to look at something in a different way and start integrating mm -hmm. that with your clinical practice. And when you but when you shared this post, my first instinct was just to reach out to you and uh, just share the enthusiasm of how and the concern that this is a big problem and we right. could do something but together. You where... already had this idea and I had no clue. Like I had no, obviously, I, mean, I don't read Rinky's brain, go figure, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. I had no clue that you had already been thinking about this, but you just didn't sort of have the right partner, I guess you could say, 
to help bring this to fruition because you're saying, hey, look, I'm on the other end. I'm the clinician. I'm the clinician. This, yeah. but, right, but who's going to be the researcher who will do it? So when I posted this, it was so great that you reached out to me to say, um, I don't know if you would like a partner in this, but it would be great if we could work together. And absolutely, I mean, that's that's what it should be. And I will say it was intimidating because I was almost – <laughs> I, I, I still have that and I feel like I'm changing, but that the attitude of, oh, I'm just a clinician, it just, I don't know where it comes from, but it's, it's, it takes a lot of work to get over it and realize that we're both working towards the same goals. Right. Um, yeah, I think the sooner that we can work through that and like, um, it's the baggage that's keeping us down, so to mm -hmm. speak, right? So um, and again, it, you know, we don't always know where we got that information, but I do think you hit the nail on the head with your very first comment, which is the insecurity is the issue. And in my opinion, the insecurity is based on having inadequate training, but having such serious responsibility. You know, the combination of the two is it's probably a bad thing. I mean, think about think about mommy wars. How much training do we get in being a mom? Mm -hmm. Right? I didn't get any training, and I saw other people do stuff. And then you have this amazing responsibility to take care of another human being besides yourself and then you see other people doing things and saying things you're like well I'm not doing it like her and her kids quiet and you know that kids over there is doing this and immediately you start to think well I'm a bad mom or I'm not this or I'm not you're not gonna you know really approach it as well how can I get more information depending on the way you view it and if that can happen in that domain I can't see imagine why it wouldn't happen in speech pathology or any other thing where you, you know your responsibility is great but your training was not did not match the responsibility there's a reason people call you the queen of analogies I just think <laughs> your analogies are always spot on or like the millennials call it on fleek like they're just they just make and I was like you make it sound like it's <laughs> one more time the, the, the millennials say what on fleek <laughs> just, have you not heard that before am I that young I don't know no you know it's just so funny to hear you say it it's just one of those things that I think is just you know it's just the way I it's the way um it's the only way that concepts make sense to me I know so but you say it like that's how everyone new. but I just feel like they're so unique and I, I know pe I've heard that people say oh Dr. Humbert she's the queen of analogies but then it's just like <laughs> Everything just becomes really crystal clear, and it's like, oh, of course, that's how you should think about swallowing. Yeah. It's like mommy wars. Care about. Well, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, really, that's what yeah. SLPs and swallowing are. It's just mommy wars. Yeah. Right? I think um, if we can get past that and realize, actually, we all have the same goal. Exactly. Helpful, so. Yeah. And so what we want to do is we would like to have monthly dysphagia grand rounds, and yes. these grand rounds would be online. Um, they'd be pre-recorded where I'm guiding clinicians through a paper. So the whole concept is um, if I post a paper before the online chat will be, it'll give clinicians an opportunity to read through the paper. And after they've read the paper, then they can download the summary or the guided self-study of the paper which means that they will have already read it and I'll sort of walk them through it the way that researchers often do in journal clubs. But it'll be much more clinically relevant. So at any point I can, if there's a concept that's difficult to understand, then I'll sort of elaborate on that. Um, the other beauty of doing it um, this way means that 
more people can join in. It doesn't just have to be here in the U.S. It can be around the world. Um, and if you have questions at, after you've read the paper, but before the online um, session is posted, you can ask some of those questions, and we might have the opportunity to address those. So this would be a conversation between Rinky and I, you know, where she would sort of come in with clinical questions as needed, but primarily it's a guided self-study with me walking people through that paper. So the overall goal is to get clinicians reading, knowing that even if they read the paper and they're like, um, all I know is that swallowing was mentioned a lot in this paper. I didn't get anything out of it. That's okay. The point is that hopefully after the guided self-study, you'll be able to go back to them and be like, oh, okay, I see where I should be looking. I see what I should be understanding. And if you do it the reverse, that's true. That's probably useful as well. If you say, I just want to listen to some of these guided self-studies, then read the paper, that's fine too. But I suspect people will get more out of it if they attempt to read it first rather than to hear my, um, my discussion and then read the paper. Because the goal is to get people to the point where they're independent at reading papers and interpreting things, um, as opposed to um, seeing after uh, reading the paper afterward, but you've already sort of gotten a summary so you know what to expect. Um, so that's that's really where we're going with this. Um, did you have anything to add? Thank you. No, I think, I think you summed it up pretty well. So there'll be one article. We're going to start with reading one research paper a month on a specific topic. Um, and with Dr. Humbert being the swallowing thought leader or expert, she's going to curate um, different papers that would best suit that topic every month and we would release it at dysphagia grand rounds we'll post it it'll have a website www.dysphagiagrandrounds.com and it would have a page where the article link is posted a summary is posted and you can then um, there'll be an announcement of when the webinar is available so this will happen every month and obviously once people start reading more together and really chatting and asking questions we could also release a list of suggested readings that will encourage you to read more on that particular topic if you need to. So I think it'll be a great way to bridge that so-called gap or just in, encourage clinical and research collaboration and partnership. So we're right. very I excited. Think what will happen is when you say you feel intimidated, part of it is because we don't speak the same language, right? Mm -hmm. So clinicians often speak in terms of, I have a patient who, I can't tell you how many people say after their talk, there's often a barrage of clinicians in the line with the first few words in their sentences. I have a patient who, and they want to know exactly what to do with that patient. Mm -hmm. And that's not the language researchers often think in. And the reverse is true, where we're up on the stage, you know, droning on and on about p-values and, you know, all these, you know, study design things that aren't exactly explicitly described. And so everyone's kind of looking at the other person like, oh, that's not really, you know, the way I would discuss this. Well, one thing that we want to do is see if this will bridge the gap in one direction, which is helping researchers to be more, uh, sorry, clinicians to be more versed in research so that they can have those conversations. If you see a, somebody whose paper you read and was reviewed, you can say, hey, I read your paper on so-and-so, and I have a question about, um, you know, the control group. That is, a, that is the kind of question that we are dying to hear, right? Mm -hmm. Because we really want to talk about the research and we really want to hear about how you think that maybe your patient population would be the, the best next population for us to investigate this treatment with because 
you know, some physiologic thing that you've been noticing. And I think that that will really open the dialogue um, up. Yes, absolutely. Like we should know how to look at something, figure out what works, why it works, figure out why that paper maybe doesn't work for us, learn how to summarize and interpret it. So I feel like dysphagia grand rounds would be a great platform or a great effort towards that movement. And I really, we're really hopeful that that will get people to start thinking a little bit differently about swallowing. And there's one thing that I want to mention that's a bit dangerous that's happening in our world, and that is the extent to which, so that I think, you know, obviously clinician and researcher, clini clinical world and research world is really important, but there's something else that's really been taking, taking over, some ways good, some ways not so good, and that is our industry partners. Mm -hmm. Our industry partners are those people who um, have a stake in, in speech pathologists purchasing a device or um, a training for a treatment approach or whatever it is, um, or have a stake in researchers investigating it for them. And, you know, I'm not going to say that the bottom line is money for all of them because that is not true, but money is important. Um, and I have noticed to some degree that. Um, speech pathologists can be taken advantage of a bit more if they can't speak intelligently about the, what people are saying the device will do. So that means that if someone's saying that this device will cause this, and in fact, anatomy and physiology tells us that's impossible, speech pathologists should be saying, um, raising their hands and saying, I mean, hey, what I know about anatomy and physiology tells me that actually these muscles do this, so why would it cause that. They should be really having a conversation as opposed, it should be a two-way conversation that's not, not one way. So that they can go back to the drawing board and get something that speech pathologists actually need and, and want. Um, um, and so I think understanding the literature that backs or does not back these things will help them to decide, well, there's nothing wrong with this device, it's just it would probably work better under these circumstances and that circumstance. So it's not about taking people's devices away or treatment approaches. It's about a clinician being able to not follow a recipe, but think critically and appraise what is known in the literature, what the, they're saying about the device, and how you're going to use it. Does that make sense? So um, in many situations, people might say that you know certain ingredient should be used in food a certain way, but you're like, hey, look, I know how I like to apply it. I like to use my pepper this way or my spices that way. Um, and sure, they're using it that way on TV in that cooking show. But ultimately, I'm going to apply it to this food because I understand the principles of cooking in this way. Mm -hmm. And so it, it should be more of a, a three-way conversation among our industry partners, clinicians, and researchers. And the one way to do that is to get clinicians to be far more literate in the research world. I completely agree. And to add to that, I would like to say what you said when someone says, I have a patient who, and then I have to go back to that patient and use this. I don't think clinicians should even look at literature that way, because like you said, your job is not to put a paper out telling us what to do on Monday morning. But I think with a better understanding of just being more literate, research literate and a better understanding of what researchers are putting out there, we should be able to take what we can from that and then like you said, use it in our own recipe, our own way, because we're going to eat that food. And I'm not good with analogies. I'm going to like not even attempt it. But uh, we're the ones <laughs> who know that recipe or that dish better than anyone else. 
So we should be able to right. use your information, but then add it in our own little way that we know is more effectively going to work. Right. And, you know, so hopefully dysphagia grand rounds really is the impetus for um, empowering clinicians to reach over to the research world, grab a little something, take a nibble. Um, and, you know, we're open to suggestions for papers or topics that you're interested in. But what I will say is that the first um, couple of um, sessions, maybe two or three, will focus on papers that have established the way certain swallowing um, events should work. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to focus on normal swallowing, and that is because a lot of literature is suggesting um, and studies that we've done with the, some funding from ASH Foundation suggests that practicing speech pathologists did not get sufficient information on just the foundation of a normal swallow. And if you layer on disorder on top of that, then oftentimes there's over-identification of, dis of disorders among patients who actually maybe have functional swallows. So we really want to focus on um, things like swallow onset time or airway protection and that kind of thing and what should be happening what is what's nor what's normal variability across you know the age span or, or bolus types what should be happening in normals so the more you're the better you are at identifying well actually that's normal the less likely you might be at over identifying and we'll identify the specific paper pretty soon on on www.dysphagiagrandrounds Dot com. Yes. And dot also com. put it out there that we will be having different topics every quarter. So we will be moving from the normal swallow to more traditional swallowing therapies and um, different swallowing maneuvers and finally moving on to seeing dysphagia in different populations. So it's it's right. hopefully the more and also the, the webinars will be recorded because we wanted most people to be able to download it and watch it at a time of their convenience. But if if there's an overwhelming need for a live discussion where you would like to ask Dr. Humbert questions or have some immediate concerns, we're, we're going to consider having the live format as well. Yeah, so basically if there's a paper that really struck a chord and after the webinar there's a lot of discussion about it and more questions, we could just sort of do an open freelance sort of hour where we just talk about the paper and people can ask questions freely as opposed to a, a more structured um, guided self-study. Yeah, so it's going to be a work in progress. So I'm excited. I know, I'm excited too. And thank you for this opportunity for this collaboration because I really feel like hey. it, it will really help clinicians and researchers move towards the right direction. In terms of well, thank you for ignoring any um, self-doubt that you had at all, which I hope you no longer have, um, in terms of approaching me or really any other researcher. And you know, the other thing is if, if you approach a researcher and, um, you know, you, find, you feel like, okay, they were, they were pretty darn um, dismissive or something like that, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was you, maybe they were busy, but, you know, even if maybe was genuinely dismissive. Just know that that is an N of 1 that doesn't represent all researchers. Um, and so I've met a wide, obviously, range of clinicians. And even when I was um, working clinically, um, we, you know, I think researchers recognize that there are all kinds of clinicians. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that, you know, we will be given the same level of um, understanding that maybe you had one bad or questionable experience, but we don't, you know, we, we all try. We all try our best to not judge. And I think it coming from a place of solidarity is 
solidarity of speech pathologists will be very good for our field and for our patients. I completely agree. I think you summed it up beautifully. Wonderful. So um, I guess what we can do, Rinki, is we can say we're done. What do you do? What, how do you want to end it? Hashtag DGR. Edit it. Has, hashtag DGR. Hashtag DGR17. <laughs> because there might be other hashtag DGRs out there. And if it leads to anything inappropriate, we don't want to be associated <laughs> with that. So let's just say hashtag DGR17. I did check and that, that brings up no Twitter results. So I think we can okay. go with that. Okay, so hashtag DGR17 and our first dysphagia grand rounds will be in January of 2017 and we hope to, um, we hope that it will be very exciting for everybody who joins. Yes, and just one quick thing, I hope people who are mm -hmm. listening and we will be sharing this on social media as well, please make sure you subscribe um, and join the mailing list because Initially, that's the only way we'll be able to reach out and let you know when the journal article is up and when the webinars are up. So we're going to need to have um, all the emails in our mailing list. Wonderful. Good. I'm glad you remember that. Cool. Well, it was nice to talk to you, Rinki. Thank you so much for it's being honest and open. On board. This was probably, I mean, I can imagine it being a bit tough, right, um, in terms of saying, hey, look, as a clinician, I feel this way and that way. But I think that you're probably saying things that a lot of clinicians are feeling. So I just want to thank you for being so candid. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Great. We'll do it again in January. <laughs> yes, we will. Have a All good right. night. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.